The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Ahoy there, welcome aboard. The West Indies currently touring Australia. Remember the master blaster, Vivian Richards? Well, we have the master caster, Peter Morse from the Blue Mountains, the double-handed spay rod expert. And before the lockdown, he had one of the toughest times fishing in Canada on those giant rivers. I've just got back from a really tough two weeks fly fishing on the huge braided rivers of the South Island of New Zealand, where they had two months of rain in two nights. So I can empathise with Peter on a very tough trip with too much water between those fish. To the giant rivers of the west coast of British Columbia, the wild steelhead rivers, and uh, Peter Morse got to put the spay casting, the double-handed fly rod into action. Peter, good morning. Yeah, good morning. How are you, mate? Yeah, going going well. Um, good on you, good I, on you. I was very interested to see how you went uh, with the fly rod on the, the, the steelhead rivers. Tell us about those rivers and, and the part of the world that you're in. Um, okay, so I flew to Vancouver and then up to... Um, this is the, the huge river up there is the Skeena, the Skeena Basin. I mean, it is, it is immense. Uh, you know, we, 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 we just don't understand in this country where, you know, the, the biggest river we have, you know, you drive across the Clarence and you think, wow. But it's sort of tidal at that bit on the highway. But up there, we're, we're, we're 50 miles up inland and this, there's just this immense, immense river fed by another series of immense rivers. And I was there with um, a fellow called Simon Gorsworth, whom any fly fisherman would know his name. Simon, or Gorsy as he's known, is one of the sort of preeminent figures in spay casting and fly line design in the world, and he works for Rio. And I was invited along, actually, to work. I had to work. I was the photographer um, for their new catalogue. And um, that was that was the reason I was there. And Gauzy, of course, knew I'd want to be doing some fishing. And uh, very kindly, I, I was told to make sure I brought along some rods as well. And we fished out of Skeener Spay Lodge. Uh, they were having a bloody tough year. I mean, you think the disappointment of missing out on the spay casting instructor certification was something, but uh, BC was... BC was it was a very disappointing, you know. They're just having one of those years with very, very low fish runs. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, the steelhead and the salmon, they just simply weren't coming into the rivers. And there's probably a variety of reasons for that. I mean, you know, one of those, the previous year had been exceptional. But I think the, uh, you know, when you add up the commercial offshore harvest and the Bering Sea there, the inshore commercial harvest, uh, the Indians, the, the Indian harvest, the native harvest. I mean, the, the actual fishermen don't, you know, don't kill steelhead, but it seems everyone else seems to want to kill them as part of their bycatch of uh, of uh, salmon fishing. So, um, yeah, we, we fished the lower Skeena, uh, very, very big water, and Simon did get a steelhead, not a big one, and his... Mate from England, oh, I forget his name off the top. Just having one of those early morning blanks. He got a he got a salmon. What, what type cool. of salmon are they? 
Um, uh, uh, not Chinook. Oh, look. Um, sockeye? Early in the morning, mate. Um, <laughs> the sockeye um, or the... Sockeye. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, coho. Oh, coho. 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 Yeah, there's coho, lots, lots yeah. of different varieties, different, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, a lot of different species. Was it a silver, it was a silver one? Yeah, very silver. Beautiful-looking fish. Beautiful. And, you know, I was excited about that. It wasn't It was about 12 pounds. Um, but it seemed to be, uh, it's just a salmon. <laughs> Everyone wants steelhead, the steelhead yeah. of the fish. Which are a giant sea-run rainbow trout, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. So they spawn in all these rivers, and uh, and then they do a little bit of growing in the rivers and then go out to sea. So the reason they go to sea, I, I, I guess there's some theories, is that there's not that much food in the river for them, but there's fantastic spawning beds. So, you know, when they spawn, there's an awful lot of progeny. Mm. And in time, they can feed on the mayflies and what have you, and the rivers and the stoneflies. And but then eventually, they've got to, they've, they've got to go to sea to find sufficient food, and that's what they do. Uh, they're called an an, an anadromous fish, uh, so they'll do their growing in the ocean and come back to the rivers to spawn. And that Skeena Basin is, uh, is 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 massive in terms of spawning water and rivers, and it's really spectacular. And then we we made our way upstream to a. Uh, uh, we finished at the lodge. We went up and fished the Bulkley River, which is one of the more famous tributaries of of the Skeena system. And we fished very hard for for uh, five days, and I got a bump. <laughs> <laughs> you got one bite in five days. But but so I am told I've communicated with quite a few few steelhead fishermen and they said look you, it's a fish where you've really got to pay your dues yeah you know you really pay your dues on this i know a few people and i've spoken to people who went there and had amazing weeks and you know they hit the run at just the right time we were there at just the right time um in september but uh, uh the fish just simply weren't there this year and whether or not this is going to become normal uh, is a is a different matter but uh, I, I must tell you, a, I must tell you a funny story, and it's it's a story about my about myself, and I, but but I think it's hilarious. Well, so, if we can't laugh at you, who can we laugh at? <laughs> so, so well, it's it's just generally, I, I I found it extremely humorous. Anyway, so Simon Gorsworth is is really really famous in the fly fishing world, particularly when it comes to spay water, and this bit of country we're in is all spay all the fly fishermen we saw are all fishing two-handers so you can't walk down the street of a town like smithers without simon you know people everyone knows him everyone knows of him but women love him and anyway, anyway we've fished this we're staying in a friend's cottage up there and we've fished uh, the run we were told to fish the run in front of their house first thing in the morning and we came out of the water and this little cottage is, is usually behind the lock gate. And as we came out of the water at 8.30, it's bitterly cold. This truck drives in. And then the truck's a uh, guy behind a wheel with a great big black dog and a little kid in the passenger seat. And he was just very surprised to see us. And he said, uh, well, uh, what are you doing here? And, you know, behind the lock gate. And I said, well, I'm staying in the house. I know the, I know the people who own it. Oh, you know, okay, you know, Charles, and blah, blah, blah. All right, terrific, and and he's he's recognised Gorsy, and we're yakking away, and he's got this funny accent. It's 
like Canadian but with a twist to it. And I was on my way to make a cup of coffee, and he's chatting away to Gauzy. Gauzy said to me later, you said, you know what he said to me after you went? I said, no, what's that? He said, is that Peter Morse? <laughs> <laughs> the guy is an Aussie. <laughs> he was an Aussie from Sydney who lives up there. But he'd been there for so long, his accent had sort of become a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was was a lovely bloke. God, God, I laughed. You know, Simon's so famous. Anyway, he was taking his his son down for a fish, his first shot at a steelhead with a two-hander. Son was six or seven years old, down there with a two-hander, you know. And that's this whole Skeena Basin is based around fishing, and I I really hope the, uh, you know, the steelhead population isn't, isn't um, you know yeah. recovers? It might, it might just, just have been a, a bad cycle, a bad year, perhaps, or you know, an anomaly. Yeah, they might I'm come really back hoping. in droves next run. You know, maybe. I think every year they're seeing more and more of a decline. Though, um, I think the big issue is the the very large amount of offshore harvesting that goes on over the horizon. You know, out in the middle of the Bering Sea, there, the drift netters and what have you. And I think that's a real issue. The, the casting in that environment where it's meant to be must really yeah. help. So I've got to get out on some of our local rivers. You know, we have rivers here that are big enough for the for the Trouts Bay, for the smaller two-handers like the 11-footers, like the Swampy Plains and the Mitamita and um, uh, the Tumut when it's in big flow. <clears throat> and they're uh, practising and, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, fishing with uh, with uh, with the light to the tr- what they call Trouts Bay level rods yeah. is, is, uh, yeah, you learn a hell of a lot because the test is not just about casting. It's about how to fish these things as, as well. So you're, you're working angles of your presentation across the, across the river, you know. So 90 degrees across the river is <clears throat> going to give you a certain swing. 45 degrees across the river is going to give you another entirely different presentation. And then there's all these various sinking tips that you can fit on to fish deeper. You can fish single flies. You can fish two flies, three flies. Uh, it's it's opened up a whole new world for me. You know, I, I uh, yeah, I, I've it, it reignited um, sort of my interest in in fly fishing. Not that that had gone away, but but just the challenge of doing something completely new, completely new. You know, from the casting to the tackle to the flies to the way we present them. I can tell you that upstream dry fly is an absolute doddle compared to learning how to swing, you know, learning to control the depth and the speed of the fly in particular, you know. And then there's what patterns to use. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm I'm really enjoying it. You you mentioned the Tumut River there. I was with one of the the local guys, guides from up Gilmore Way, um, Mac, who... uh, with uh, John had, had perfected the, the down and across method for that particular yep. river on single-handed rods, though, so you'd be more uh, at home with a, a bigger rod. You could cover more water with the double-handed spay thing, which which you can do yeah. uh, and, you know, I, I can't do. But um, I was adamant. I fished with them all day, and, and I just stuck to my upstream indicator yeah. nymphing because yeah. that's what you do on all the smaller rivers. And, yeah. and on the tiny rivers that, that we fish, but on the big tumut, when it was was full, uh, yeah. they just got so many hits. And I finally put on one of his little flies, uh, mm. peacock curl body, and an over. It was like a traditional Welsh wet fly yeah. or, yep. or yep. something yep. like that, that that they tied. And yep. I cast across, let it go down, mend, mend, 
bang, 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 after two hours of upstream nymphing, and then all of a sudden hit, 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 and they attack it. They don't just, you know, upstream nymphing, you don't feel them take it most of the time. Mm. But yeah, when, yeah, you, oh, when, you swing, when you swing, they actually go at it, and they... They it's a real hit. Yeah, they hit it aggressively, don't they? Which is a was a real revelation to me, and that they turned me right around because I'd always thought that down and across was a mugs method. Yeah, and the other thing, the other thing that you do, and we did a big spay thing in New Zealand uh, last year, and it's about promoting fishing the bigger waters that most people just walk by. So I'm actually out there searching for water that suits what I want to do. I'm not. You know, I want the big water. I want the water with lots of room that no one else is really fishing. And you can cover so much ground as yeah. opposed to just fishing the seams. You you yeah. miss so much of it when you just fish straight up. As as yeah, we're in that we're in that mindset of dry fly nymph up upstream because the fish face upstream, but yeah. uh, down and across you're also bringing it across their noses. But it it just covers the whole river as opposed to to one fifth of it or even, even less. Absolutely. So, so it's it's a method worth worth trying, and I'd say people will adapt it to to some of those big rivers. You mentioned the Clarence and all of that. Maybe people will start to adapt it to to uh, some of the estuaries and things as well. I, I don't know where it's applicable outside yeah, of, I, of salmonid. I had well, no, that doesn't need to be salmonid. I had some a great session with a couple of mates up in Coffs Harbour in one of the creeks there on Luderick. Wow. You know, they're out of reach for the bank. There's people walking dogs and everything behind you. You don't want to be throwing a conventional backcast. So, you know, we're spay casting, which doesn't require all that much room behind you, With again, with the trout spay rods. But getting flies uh, 50, 60, 70 feet out very easily and where the luderick were and catching them, you know. So they, yeah, that there's a there's a... There's a, quite a few fellows starting. To that's fantastic. In, in that's the salt. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and if there's an easier fly to tie than the uh, Ludwig weed fly, I'd like to see it. To yeah. Take you about three seconds. Get you fishing very quickly. That's yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Habit. Well, there's a great there's a great adaption of it because, as you say, you can't be casting back behind you when there are trees or a bike path. You might end up hooking a jogger. Very often, very often, uh, those places, you know, Luderick are in places where you don't have a lot of room. You know, you've got rock walls behind you. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, and and it's perfectly suited to those fish. And they're great fun because they school up too. Yeah, and look at the original Luderick fisherman's rods, you know. Yeah, fly rods. Fly rods. Fly fly rods, fly reels. That's that's what they use. That's what they use. Center pins, yeah. Fantastic. Well, there you go. Well, there's something to try out. Uh, and I know, I know Bushy and his mate Dave Longham have used them oh. on Bremen stuff down on the mm. south coast estuaries for many, many years, but they cast overhead mostly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, Simon Gorsworth said to me, we're out on the Balfour River, and he said, because uh, uh, he's English but lives in America, I, I, I saw you overhead cast there, you know, if you hook a fish on an overhead cast, you have to break it off. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so his uh, credo is spay is the only way by the sound yeah, of it. That's it. That's it. Oh, I love the casting, mate. The casting is just, it's just you know, when you really hit it sweetly, it, it, this thing just flies, absolutely flies. I, I, when I go down to work with Falls Lake, I, sometime I've ended up with an audience of 20 people behind <laughs> me. Very funny there one day. It was a very popular stop-off for, busloads of Chinese tourists when they used to come there. They'd build a new toilet block there and on their way back to Sydney they'd stop there and go for a walk and look at the ducks and 
what have you, and I, I'm, I'm there, and I became conscious of a group of people behind me. So I'm 30, 40 feet out in the water, and I've got my headphones in, listening to music, and, and I turn around, and there's a woman standing there, and she's got her hands up to her mouth, and she's shouting something at me. Chinese woman, and I took the headphones out. I said, what? She said, do it properly. I don't know what she thought properly was. I thought I was doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. You you should be a tourist attraction in the Blue Mountains. You've got the, well, the three the, sisters uh, yeah. and the, the, the two-handed spay caster. Yeah, I, I have. Just someone's got to pay me, mate. I, uh, I have had another big group of Chinese tourists get it, and I got a big round of applause from them. Uh-huh. Plenty of them standing there. Big round of applause. <laughs> like I was part of the, uh-huh. maybe the bus driver had said I was part of the entertainment. Tight lines, yeah. Peter Morse. Thanks for joining Thanks, us. Mate. Always great and to chat. There's a plenty of fun in fishing, not just catching fish. Yeah, good on you, mate. Thank you. On ABC Radio, it's The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Tonight I'd like to talk about those anglers who fish for trout. These men with habits quite perverse, they lie of course, but even worse, they leave their homes, their kids, their spouses, don a silly pair of trousers known as waders, funny vests with 50 pockets round their chests. On their heads they put a hat, if a man could call it that. No thought at all of how it looks, old and dirty, filled with hooks. They take a pair of dirty socks, a basket, little plastic box in the early hours of morn, pack the car and then they're gone. They drive to some deserted river cold enough to make them shiver and in that stream they stand about hoping to secure a trout. At warmth and comfort they will scoff unless their bits are freezing off. Unless they suffer quite a bit they say they're not enjoying it. And then they start to act quite odd, concentrating on their rod and always playing with their fly, whether it be wet or dry. It's part of some strange ritual with customs quite habitual. They chant the angler's catechism, holy into masochism, hair's ear, nymph and greenwell's glory, red take tups and some too gory to ever mention right out loud, unless you're with an angling crowd. Trout fishing does have bad effects on the angler's view of sex. That may be why he seeks to tie something called a Spanish fly. Now I recall some indication of a different connotation that I heard a long way back as an aphrodisiac. An angler's wife, says one with force, cannot expect much intercourse. With women, anglers aren't at ease. They show a deal more expertise at playing with their rod and fly. It doesn't do much good to sigh when your husband's only wish is to stuff and mount a fish. Now this technique may be of use. If you're wanting to seduce an angling husband who's obsessed with flies and rods and hook line vest, stick a fish hook in your lip. He'll take one look at you and flip and give a little extra wiggle. Remember that you mustn't giggle. What seems to me to make no sense is men with some intelligence subject themselves to such abuse. Do they do it to amuse? No, I do not believe they do. I'm trying to think this subject through. I have come to realise they just like playing with their flies. Our good old Blue from the Central West is on the big trout stream in the sky on the big fish.
with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. It was the dark of the moon and the prawns were running. The expert in the mug shot across the lake, engine gunning. The whiting were biting. But only on live prawn, said expert to mug, we'll fill the boat, come the light of dawn. The mug toiled away with light and net, filling the prawn bucket, left him cold and wet. The expert watched on with lots of advice, while the shivering mug was bitten by lice. Hurry up you mug, tides are turning, we can't be late. We'll bag out now that I've collected the perfect bait. They dropped the anchor. It was cold and black. Remember when they bite, give them some slack. They cast their prawn rigs out into the dark. The expert said, we'll catch our bag. This'll be a lark. They fished on and on, hour after hour. Not a bite, not a touch. The situation was dour. The mug gave the expert an evil look as he threaded another live prawn onto his hook. All bloody night without even a nibble. You call yourself expert. What a load of drivel. As the scene was illuminated by the rosy light of dawn, they saw a crab shuffling off with a prawn. 
The mug gave the expert the back of his hand. You bloody fool, he said. We've been casting onto the sand. <laughs> As they motored home across the lake, the mug thought, how was I duped by this fake? My family's waiting at home with the skillet and we're heading back without even a fillet. The expert now chastened said, I know how to sate their hunger. On the way home, we'll call in at the fishmonger. The expert has now pawned his rod and reel-o. The price of redemption? $69 a kilo. On ABC Radio, it's The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Here comes Tinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find them? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. Hey, Scott. I believe you've had a fantastic week. It's been huge. Big, big week. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sort of a... The last couple of weeks, because of the weather, I've been sort of housebound, so I was ready to break out. So the last, this last week, uh, I've been very busy on the water and mixing with fishermen and, and learning and listening. And Ah, oh, look, oh, it's been a crazy fishing week this week. Excellent. So we, we might start with the learning and listening and mixing with fishermen. I believe you had a, a, a social function. Well, it was uh, 50 years since the um, opening of the research station, fisheries research station here at Taylor's Beach. And I shared a little tent with the, the commercial fisher, Johnny Elisi, and I were under the same roof, uh, which can't always happen in, in lots of coastal towns, sadly, because in most cases, or in many cases, um, the commercial and the recreational fishermen don't get on all that well. Well, that's a sad thing because... Uh, we've all got the same, we should all have the same aims and objectives. And so I sat there for eight hours with John and we had a great time. We uh, met all the people that were bussed into the facility. But a lot of people don't realise there's over 130 uh, fisheries people employed there. I think it's the biggest in, in the state, if not, not the um, Southern Hemisphere. Um, and they do fantastic work and every. All the fisheries are based there. There are other centres at Coffs Harbour and down at Nowra, out in the bush. Uh, but here's, I think, the largest one. So they're celebrating 50 years. So Johnny and I sat down for the day and I thought, what am I going to tell all these people? And they poured out of the bus and they came towards us. And, and I'm thinking, oh, you know. I had a few of my books on display and, we're going to talk about the books and the history of fishing. But then Johnny had a master stroke. He opened up the fish box. He had an ice box there, and he pulled out a two-and-a-half-kilo crab. Oh, when he held it up, well, the people, oh, they came from everywhere <laughs> to have a look at this crab, which we call Charlie. So Charlie the crab. Well, Charlie performed for eight hours. That absolute fantastic <laughs> We should pay this crap. <laughs> it's amazing how people are attracted. I mean, you hold up a mullet, no one really would have given two hoots. But if you hold up a crab that's swinging and swiping and trying to grab everybody, 
Well, that really generates some interest, I can tell you. So he was a mud crab? Oh, big muddy. Yeah, a thumping great muddy. And he had a few others in the box too. Had a small one and then the measure how to measure mud crabs. But one of the mud crabs he had has been in a big blue. And John explained to me that mud crabs love a blue and they'd had to fight uh, over a, a female mud crab, so I'm told. And this crab had lost a claw and had been, um, its shell was punctured and it really must have come second in the fight anyway. But it was still frisky and ready to go. So we had one, Charlie, he was in fine fettle. He might have been the aggressor, I don't know. But the other one, he wasn't too well. And then there was a little, uh, well, it measured. But people were fascinated, absolutely fascinated. Uh, and to see a two and a half kilo mocha, John has seen them up to four kilo. How would you like one of those to grab hold of your toe? Well, that would be the end of your toe. You'd only have to count to nine then. <laughs> well, I've told you that story of growing up at Karua and the bloke yeah. next door to Manana and, and Dars who put them in the chook pen. And, and my yeah. brother and I, we'd go and get Nana's broom and we'd poke it through the wire and it would crush the end of the broom. Well, what did it do to the chooks? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think the bloke was trying to breed an eight-legged chook so everyone got a drumstick. Yeah, well, they could run too fast, you see. <laughs> that's, a, that's the old joke. That's the old joke. We're speaking with Stinker, who's had a big week at the, the Nelson Bay Fisheries or Port Stephens Fisheries Research Facility. I had no idea they had 130 people there. We've spoken to a few of them. Trent Alexander, who does all of that survey work when fishermen send them the guts and the frames from the fish through one of the big tackle networks, and then they can tell you where the fish has come from and where it's been and the tagging and all all of that. So they do some good uh, interactive stuff with the pros and the amateurs, don't they, Stinker? Oh, they do. Um, and it gives the, the, the public the opportunity to go. Like, no one goes out there to have a look around because it's off the beaten track. And it's out in the mangrove forest there. And it's really, it's a wonderful facility. But no, very few people in, in Nelson Bay or Port Stephens have, have taken the opportunity to go and have a look and to learn what goes on out there. Well, with this was the whole objective of this day. And it was very successful uh, as because the buses, see, they, people were bussed in because there was no parking or very lim- limited parking. And so they all arrived and the buses were full. Um, plenty of kids, which was very um, pleasing for me. And that's who I spent most of my time because they look at me like I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> There's Duco over there, you know. Oh, these kids, it's great. Right, I, I enjoyed it as much as a kid. Oh, what's well, what are some of the questions you get, Stinker? I mean, that they just look at you and uh, and you love the kids, don't you? Having having oh, spent your whole life yeah. as an educator, really. Well, they look at all my books and they look at this. They look at Charlie the crab, and then they come over and they ask me, they look me right in the eye and say, "How old are you, Stinker?" <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I said, oh, right, eh? <laughs> that seems to be the most concerning thing for all. I, I heard, I heard you said to one of the kids when he asked that, said, "How old are you, Stinky?" You said, "Well, I'm so old. When I was a kid, the Dead Sea was only sick." <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. See, but that would have the kids would have even understood that one. That, no, they, they wouldn't. That's one for the, that's yeah. one for their parents. That's one for their parents. We're yeah, speaking with yeah. John Stinker no. Clark, who's been at the Big Open Day, the fiftieth anniversary of the Fisheries Research Station. Uh, up at Port Stephens. Um, amazing stuff going on there. Lots of research into aquaculture. I really did enjoy talking to one of the scientists up there. Remember we had that tent on the waterfront 
uh, that big seafood day that we, we did. And one of the scientists was working out a, a plant-based protein to feed aquaculture fish like kingfish. And I think that's a really sustainable thing, isn't it, Stinker? Not to, to take all the fish out of the sea and create fish meal for fish farming, but to actually find alternatives that are uh, sustainable. Well, for aquaculture, I'm a supporter of aquaculture because I don't think, and I'm sure, that we cannot keep putting pressure on wild fish because sooner or later the resources are going to struggle. But with aquaculture, and particularly with kingfish, well, that failed. It actually failed, and all the kingfish escaped. They had started off with snapper. Well, that failed. It's in the open ocean. And if you get a six, seven, eight, even 10 or 11 metre sea, to keep a cage stable in the open ocean uh, isn't a very easy thing to do. So uh, aquaculture with snapper failed, aquaculture with kingfish failed, aquaculture with mulloway failed in the open ocean. So really the only place that you can do it with any degree of success and confidence would be in still water, but they'll work that out sooner or later. But the uh, other problem that we have, and it's a major problem for all oyster growers, is the presence of QX, a uh, um, parasite that, that kills the oysters. It doesn't have any impact on human. You won't get sick from QX, but the oysters will die, uh, which has put incredible pressure on, on our oyster industry. Uh, and I've, I've met all the oyster growers, and they're a wonderful, wonderful group of people and their families. Um, and they've had some tough times over the years, going right back to the 1860s and 70s, um, and that's a long time ago, when oyster, uh, growing oysters uh, in some sort of order or grow, growing them or farming them um, come, come along. I mean, we didn't start until early 1900s that we started thinking about how to grow them on sticks and then racks, of course. Port Stevens, which is a home of beautiful... Um, Sydney rock oyster, we're under incredible pressure and some families are leaving the industry, which is so, so disappointing to me. And you wrote about the history, didn't you? We're speaking with John Stinker-Clark, it's the big fish. You wrote about the history of oyster growing and that that industry being so huge up uh, the the river at Karua and right through the port of Port Stephens, the biggest oyster growing region in in the world at one stage and how the um, Indigenous people, the, the Aboriginal people, the local First Nations people um, played such an instrumental role in getting that industry up and going, did all of the hard work. They did. And to have Warramai folk in your oyster shed was a privilege because they were such good workers, so honest, and uh, they just they prided themselves on their ability and their work ethic. Um, and they were highly, and as they still are, highly respected in our community. But then the closure in 1984-85, and that really caused a major disruption to the whole system where sheds closed and families split on opinions as to how the industry would progress. So, um, yep, but the Aboriginal people are still involved, not in the numbers that they were, but I just hope that the industry can get back up on its feet as it has done on numerous occasions in the past. Well, Stinker, it sounds like there are a lot of scientists there at the, the research station celebrating the 50th year who've been working hard to help the oyster growers, the Cole brothers and all those 
wonderful families uh, up there. It's, it's a massive industry, and it's a really important industry for the health of the system. Oysters filter so much water and, and clean up the water, and uh, they're a, a vital uh, habitat as well for brim and other, other fish. I mean, the stories you've got of giant jewfish in, inside the racks, all sorts of stories you've got from those oystermen researching that, that beautiful book. I mean, just, um, it's such a, a great form of aquaculture, isn't it? It's so clean and green. Well, well, it is, but like I say, there are so many things that can go wrong. Heavens, it can be too hot, too cold, too much fresh water, not enough, too high salinity. Uh, the, <laughs> I mean, and then when the, after three years when the oyster is ready to harvest, then there's also the problem with theft. So after they've battled every possible problem along the way, and water quality, of course, is another one. And then to have your oysters stolen, uh, you know, I mean, they've got to battle all of that before an oyster gets onto your plate. And the, the oysters that come out of Port Stephens and other systems, the Sydney Rock oyster is, in my opinion, the most beautiful oyster of all. And that's an indigenous oyster. That's That was here when Captain Cook arrived and long before him too. Um, and any... So what people think that Sydney rock oysters only grow in Sydney. Well, that's not true. Sydney rock oysters grow in Tweed Heads uh, up on the Queensland border. And, uh, gee, I just hope that, that things recover. That's yeah. it. Well, we've got all of those scientists working on it by the sound of it. Hey, Stinker, have you been fishing, mate? Oh, look, I have had a fantastic week. We might get back to that, Stinker, and, and find out about your... Uh, fishing exploits this week as well uh, you've had a few adventures by the sound of it uh, in the meantime dogfish dave will tell us about the uh, the mighty mulloway in the estuary
Dogfish Dave and the Tunaful Singers and the Mulloway Sleeps Tonight. And we've got Stinker on the Big Fish. Stinker's had a great week. He went to the 50th anniversary celebrations for the research centre at Port Stephens, the fisheries research centre. And hundreds of people turned up in buses to see Stinker in a two kilo performing mud crab called Charlie. And <laughs> did a fair bit of research into Mulloway there at the, uh, at the centre too. We're looking after those stocks, aren't we, Stinker? Oh, yeah, they do far, far more work than, than I ever considered. I know they do some great work out there, but it, there's far more going on, on out there than I ever understood. And I think there's um, far more... Uh, we were talking earlier about how many people work there. I think there's a lot more than 130. Um, yeah, uh, so it's an asset. It's a major asset, and I'd really encourage anyone to to look it up and to find out as much about it as they possibly can. But yep, it was a, and a real eye opener for me. I mean, I follow fishing pretty closely, but it's uh, it's sort of jumped ahead of where I am. I will have to get some more of those great scientists on because they're doing a lot of great work and a lot of great work um, sponsored and paid for and supported by the recreational fishing uh, trust money, the license money as well. And Stinker, we can't talk to you without talking fishing. I believe you've had an, another adventure at your favourite place. Well, I went up with a group of friends. And we spent a couple of nights up in Broughton Island. Oh, gee. I only go to, to about two or three times a year. But I really do enjoy it. It's just a bit of a break and something different. And really, it's a bit odd because from Broughton Island, I can look back to Fingal Bay and see my house. So I'm on holidays, but I can see my own house <laughs> <laughs> and just see what's going on. But I, we went up there on Monday. And we went up in a bit of a subway, so it pushed us up because it's north, heading north, eight nautical miles from the entrance to Port Stephens. So the um, subway pushed us up to Broughton Island, and out we jumped, um, set ourselves up, and got went fishing. See, I don't fish during the daytime. Uh, you know, that's time for me to lie around in the sun, go for a walk, go for a swim, you know, do other things, have a read, whatever. But then in the in the evening, and like the sun, say, just before sundown, I might go two or three hours or two and a half hours before sundown. Now, that's what I call peak period. So I don't fish. Everyone else goes out there and wants to fish all day, every day. Not me. I'm quite happy to just to fish for three or four hours. Um, and I would prefer to fish in the evening um, than the morning because if I have to get up at half past four or five o'clock in the morning, I sort of like a bit robotic for the rest of the day. <laughs> but if I go fishing in the evening, I can go and have a lot of fun, get cleaned up, clean the fish, scrub up, and then have a few beers and then have a good sleep. So I reckon I'm a, I've become, I've morphed into a, an evening fisherman. And who did you go with? Did you have some good company before we find oh, out what you caught? Great company. Well, my mate up the road, he, he and I always go. Ray, Ray and I, we, we fish, uh, he's my fishing mate. You've got to have one of them. Gee, they're handy. A real good fishing mate, uh, a great company. And he and I have been fishing together for quite a long time. But uh, I don't know whether you know, Scott, but I started radio over, well, 30-odd years ago. I did a segment on a commercial radio program with Noel Kelly, the old, old uh, rugby league the famous enforcer, the famous front rower, whose great quotes included, I always like to retaliate first. Retaliate first, that was him. He's a tough, tough as teak. But underneath that, he was a real soft, um, 
he loved kids and he was a total gentleman. And so there's a lot that very few know. Remember him, remember him with uh, Rex Mess up on uh, Controversy Corner. He was terrific. He was, a, he was a very good media performer, Noel. Good, good speaker. Oh, well, he didn't care about anything. He was politically incorrect. And, and I'd like to see more politically incorrect people around. <laughs> oh, you've come to the right show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Noel's younger son, Danny, and he's as keen as mustard, and he's just fired up. And I love taking those fishing that just can't get enough of it, and they ask good questions, and they're prepared to give things a go. And, and Danny, so I took Danny and his, his mate Mark with, with us, so that was four of us to go fishing on Broughton Island, and we had a ball. We had an absolute ball. So they um, they fished in a different area to us. I normally, after I travelled to Broughton, because I've only my big boat is still only small. My big boat's only fifteen and a half foot. So I really stay close around the island. I don't go out to the wide reefs, but close around the island, I catch more fish than I need. And I caught we caught oh, three or four snapper that went over three kilo, and then quite a few uh, in between two and three. And like we only kept what we, we needed, which not real many. But uh, on the last, pretty much, well, the last fish that we caught on Monday, um, my mate Ray, his rod just, oh, it went in a semicircle and the line squealed. And he said, oh, I got something on here. He said, this is a monster. Well, it turned out to be, after 20 minutes, this giant kingfish. I mean, <laughs> oh, a, a bit disappointing in one respect because we were sort of hoping for a big snapper. But after a while, you can tell what's on the end of the line by the way that it performs. And it performed like a kingfish because that's what it was. <laughs> but we finally pulled it on board and I was, well, that's enough, let's go home. So we went home. But little did we know that the sea was going to, and the wind... The wind came away on Monday night and made Tuesday. You couldn't go fishing on Tuesday. Uh, and then we went home. We come home on Wednesday morning. So really, I only had one crack at it all, and that was on Monday. But we got enough fish on Monday to keep us all happy. It's, it's always good fun out there, isn't it? I mean, the wildlife, the incredible bird life and the penguins. And when you walk across to the other side and you've got the beautiful North Beach and whiting cruising in the crystal clear waters... Oh. Um, whiting. Well, I w- so because the southerly was blowing, the north beach is protected. Now, the water on the northern side, and that faces Seal Rocks. So I went over the island and walked onto the beach on north beach facing Seal Rocks. And I looked into the into the water, and there they were. Oh, fantastic. Oh, the biggest whiting you'd ever want to see. As big as your arm, and they were just oh, a metre and a half off the, off the beach just cruising around, having a good time. No one was upsetting them. This is all too much for me. So I raced <laughs> back and I got my rod and I had, a, I looked for a small hook, but I don't have too many small hooks, but I had a number 12. Now, number 12 is a very, very small hook. It's more of a garfish Yeah, it's a little fly, else. it's a fly hook really, yeah. Yeah, well, there's not much of it. Anyway, that's all I had. I use it for catching bait sometimes. Anyway, I put that on with no lead at all, no lead, on the end of my line, and then I got a cube of prawn, and that's all really I had. I'd like to have had some worms just to give them a real try. But anyway, then I threw that right into the middle of this, oh, there must have been 150, 200 whiting that we saw along the beach. 
all in a big string right along the beach. And they were beautiful fish. Anyway, it was so frustrating because they wouldn't have a crack at it. Uh, you needed a uh, bit of worm, Stinky. You needed a bit of worm. Well, that would have been handy. But anyway, what happened, after a while, one must have thought, well, let's give it a shot. So he grabbed it. And for probably five seconds, my rod buckled over. And now I thought, here we go. And, of course, then the hook pulled. And um, But I, I'd love, I, of all the, the two days or three days that I spent on Broughton, the thing that <laughs> I think of most is that whiting that got away. <laughs> Not all the big snapper and the, and the kingfish that we caught, <laughs> but the one that's still out there. Oh, Stinker, it's always the way. Tight lines, mate. Catch you next time on The Big Fish. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.